Thank you. Let me first repay the compliment. Um, it's an enormous pleasure to be here. One of the rather pleasant things about working hard and rising in the profession, as I hope you will all have an opportunity to do, is that you do actually get a, a number of invitations to speak. Actually, if you get senior enough, you can choose which ones to accept and which ones to turn down. And what is the reason I'm here is not because I've been invited. The reason I am here is because this is one of the few places that I'm very happy to come back to again. And that is because of the intellectual quality of the institution and the very good friends I have here. And I'd particularly like to say what a pleasure it is, uh, the inspiration Geoffrey has been for me over the years. Now, I've picked a topic on the War of Independence because it brings together some of the different interests that this centre represents. The interest, obviously, in military history, but also the interest in international relations and the ways in which um, scholars here, working here, have looked into cognate social sciences, such as collective psychology, in order better to understand and better to offer insights on the policy-making process. And I wanted to try and pull those together in order to look at British strategy. What I don't want to do is to do either what I have done, I've written a book on the War of Independence, in which is go through it in a sort of plonky fashion, this is what the British did, this is why they want, did it, uh, or to do what other people have done. I want to try and look at the wider nature of British strategy in what, after all, was for the British a very unusual war, and by doing that, to raise the question of how do you actually devise strategy when you face the unexpected, the completely unexpected. Because for British policymakers, um, the combination of a revolution in, on the other side of the Atlantic and a key area of the, co of the colonial world, plus war with the second, third, and fourth naval powers in the world, France from 1778, the Spaniards from 79, and the Dutch from 1780, was a peculiar, unusual, and unique set of circumstances which their history did not fully give them an understanding of what to do. Now, that's point one for departure, but there are several other points of departure. Point two for departure is an intellectual problem. And the intellectual problem is a problem for any state facing a war which is how do you bring your military strategy and your political strategy into line? And that's a strategy which I think is particularly difficult when you're facing what to you is a civil war or a rebellion, which in other words makes the political strategy element and indeed to a considerable extent the military strategy element even more problematic. So that's point two as a point of intellectual departure. And point three as a point of intellectual departure is a another what I hope is insight, which is that most wars in the 17th and 18th century, and I would actually tell you most wars in world history, but that would possibly be a rash remark, certainly most wars in the 17th and 18th centuries ended in compromise, ended with neither side winning. Uh, we can discuss why that is, um, but that was nevertheless something that one can observe. And how does the fact that the war, certainly from late 77 or even more from uh, the summer of 1778, how does the fact that that war is almost bound to end in a compromise interact with the strategic choices, both the military strategic choices and the political strategic choices made by both sides? I'm going to focus on the British side, but you might equally well ask the same question of the Americans. Okay? So 
That's the third point of departure. And that third point of departure means that, in a way, if one is trying to evaluate military strategy and political strategy for many of the conflicts of the period, you have to think about how far they have really thought their way through the point that it is likely to end into a compromise and how best to organize the war in order to ensure that you have the best compromise possible. And let me just add a quick coda on that point. If you don't believe me when I say the War of Independence ends in a compromise, think of it in these terms. Um, at the, it ends both in a military and a political compromise. A military compromise, at the end of the day, neither side is strong enough to destroy the other or defeat the other conclusively on the North American uh, sphere of hostilities. In 1782, when the peace process gets into a, uh, into a high drive, Britain is still in occupation of New York City, of Charleston and of Savannah, and there's no way the Americans can kick them out. In fact, the 1782 campaign focuses on trying to get the Brits out of New York City, and it doesn't work. At the end of the day, it is going to have to be a compromised peace that will get the British to withdraw their garrisons. Uh, at the end of the day, the Americans had gone into the war in 75, pledged not only to kick the wretched Brits out of the 13 colonies, but also to free um, Canada, New France. Uh, whatever you want to call it, from tyranny. And, of course, that had gone dramatically wrong. And in the end of the day, there was going to need to be some sort of territorial compromise which dealt with the issue of what would be the relationship between the 13 colonies as an independent country and British North America as a continuing presence to the north and also as a potential support for the Native Americans, the, what, you, what used to be called the Indians. So the practicality is that there are elements of compromise that are going to have to play a role in the peace settlement and the question is how far is the as it were conduct of the war intelligently constructed in order better to better by, by both sides to ensure a compromise that they like and a very last point on that I remember speaking not so long ago to a British of uh, what he was then retired but a British, chap who'd been a British officer in Northern Ireland during the counterinsurgency war whatever you want to call it counter-terrorist war against the provisional IRA and I said to him, well, did he see it as a failure, that in the end of the day, uh, the, you know, the political wing of the IRA had uh, become a mainstream political movement and gained a degree of power within Northern Ireland? And he said, well, no. He said all that he thought the army could ever have achieved was holding the parameters within which the politicians would eventually have to talk to each other. And I thought to myself that was a very interesting discussion of the nature of counterinsurgency warfare that, you know, in a sense, we as military historians tend to put an emphasis on the military aspect of counterinsurgency warfare, but actually that in many senses the military aspect is neither here nor there. The key thing is how you hold the pattern within which eventually a political solution is going to be produced, whether it's an, an internal war, whether it's a civil war, or whether it's an international conflict. So those are the backgrounds. Let me start, start with something that would be extraordinary to you sitting here in 2006. It would be inconceivable today to believe that a major leader of a relatively intelligent man of a major state, at that stage probably the world's leading military power, should go into a war and continue in that war even when things weren't going too well because he believed that he had a divine mission and that providence ensured that he had to do so. We couldn't believe that would happen in the 21st century because we've long past moved away from that age. But if you want to look at George III's motivation, 
you have in part to, and in a sense, George III's motivation is pretty crucial in this counterinsurgency or civil war scenario. You have to think in part of his sense of his destiny, his role. And a very, it's very interesting to look at him having read Geoffrey's book on the grand strategy of Philip II because there are a lot of very interesting comparisons. George III, and we know a lot about George III, he wrote letters incessantly. He, in fact, he was a quite, I see, I, this is the age before Freud, but I mean, I don't know how else one describes other than as anal, a man who dates his letter to the minute in which he starts writing it. Every single George III letter is dated to the minute he started writing it, uh, which is very useful for the historian, incredibly useful. Uh, and um, the letters are about 95% of George III's correspondence is in print. And also, of all the British monarchs, the only other one who is as much recorded is Queen Victoria. So for George III, we have massive correspondence. It's not as with many historical figures where, in a pre-biographical age, they are, where, where they're really pre-biographical figures. We don't really know what they were thinking. His predecessor, George II, wrote very little. It's very difficult to gauge what he was thinking. With George III, you know. And George III's correspondence, both in the 1770s with Lord North, the Prime Minister, but also with other ministers, makes it absolutely clear what he thought was at stake in the American War of Independence. As far as George was concerned, the patriots, but let's call them rebels, because from his point of view they're rebels, I'm not making any pejorative remark about them, but as far as he was concerned, the rebels were rebels as much against the natural order of things in civil society as against the natural order of things from the point of view of the divine organization of the world. I mean, Dr. Johnson's remark that the devil was the very first Whig would have been a remark that George III would have entirely concurred with. George III, incidentally, knew Johnson. He let Johnson use the Royal Library in Buckingham House and was very keen on Johnson. But, you know, Dr. Johnson's remark, the devil was the very first Whig, would have been one exactly to George III's mind. He has absolutely no doubt about it. These rebels were dangerous people, self-willed people, because behind the mask of all their talk about liberty and freedom, what one saw as a defiance of the natural order of life, one saw a willful disregard for laws, human and divine. Well, how then do you deal with the situation that the war doesn't necessarily go as well as you think it should do? It is quite simple. This is providence testing you. Repeatedly in his correspondence, when things went badly, George III saw it as the divine, uh, uh, the divine testing of himself personally and of the country he had to lead. And as a result of this, he goes through all sorts of strategies. An aspect of George's strategy, for example, is annual fast days. You know, the country is all supposed to fast. I can tell you that a lot of people didn't fast, but that's not the point. We're talking about George III's attitude. Annual fast days in which, in order to pray to God for God's assistance in the war against the traitors and rebels on the other side of the Atlantic, that, you know, one would mortify oneself by fasting and praying. George III took that sort of thing very seriously. Uh, other people, like his eldest son, the future George IV, regarded it as a very bad joke. But George III took that sort of thing extraordinarily seriously. And it's exactly matched up with both his personal uh, attitude and also his religious views. In terms of his personal attitude, George was a man who 
focused on duty. For him, duty was absolutely crucial. He knew his duty. That was a frequent phrase of George III's, and he expected everybody else to know their duty. And in that classic aspect in which you don't know your duty is if you're either being a rebel or a British minister saying, well, maybe we should treat with these people. Maybe they have a point of view. Because somebody who was saying that clearly didn't understand the challenge. But secondly, it's the nature of providence. Now, here again, there are, you have to think for a second about 18th century attitudes to religion. Most of us, when we're thinking about the 18th century, are inclined to see the 18th century as what was called an age of reason. And we're inclined to argue, well, okay, we know they were still religious, but that deism surely was what was going on. Deism, you will recall, I mean, this is a very gross simplification, but deism is essentially a view that the, uh, the deity has created God, although they often thought of God in a very impersonal fashion, the deity has created the universe um, and then does not directly intervene in it. And, of course, the image that was used at the time and has been used subsequently is of, the, is of the, a God as a watchmaker, sets the universe going and then backs out. All right? And that, of course, is the way in which, if you were reading textbooks or a, a lot of literature 20, 30 years ago, you would have found that, in, uh, that interpretation advanced. Actually, that's not very satisfactory. The 18th century, in many senses, was a profoundly religious age, though, of course, there were also deists and skeptics there. Obviously, there were. But in many senses, it's a profoundly religious age. If you think of both the United States, or what becomes the United States, and of Britain, and of Germany, for example, you have the so-called Great Awakening of Protestant enthusiasm in the 1730s, 1740s, and 1750s. It was a very powerful movement. Within Britain, of course, the most powerful aspect of that being the Wesleyan uh, Methodism, which is very, very strong. And in the case of George III, you have to think of a man who, for example, when he was having... Um, uh, um, um, his palace at Windsor decorated um, uh, had Benjamin West, the great American painter, but of course Benjamin West was a loyalist so he ended up uh, in London, but had Benjamin West painting paintings on revealed religion. You know, the idea for George is that religion was not just some distant aspect out there, but it directly interfered and intervened in the, in the organisation and uh, events of the world. So when he gets good war news from America, this is divine providence showing its support, and when he has bad news, it's divine providence testing him. And that is a very, very important point, because it means that at that very senior political level, it is hard to produce a dual military political strategy which is predicated on the notion of trying to push for as favourable a compromise as possible. Because if you think about it, and it's not just me inventing this standing here in front of you, you can find these views advanced at the time, you get people saying from the outset, well, listen, if these people have rebelled, what we've got to try and do is recreate a political world in which they can return to their loyalty by trying as far as possible to um, produce a set of policies and a situation which they're going to like. That's one strategy. That is a strategy that is unwelcome to George III, completely unwelcome. George III takes the view that these are dis disobedient children who need to be shown the rod. And he actually frequently in his correspondence uses images of bad children and of George as the good father. Incidentally, if you therefore look at American literature, you will know that in American literature they frequently refer to George III and use literature of him as a bad father. 
George III sees them as bad children. They see him as a bad father. It's very interesting, this double play on notions of paternalism and patriarchalism, which is very important. And we tend to ignore that because it doesn't fit into our concept of, of, of thought. Second, uh, sorry, third, um, is the attitude coming out from the parliamentary opposition. Now, the parliamentary opposition says, from the start, we shouldn't really be fighting our American cousins. Quarter of a million people out of a population, it's a pre-census age, but roughly six million. Quarter of a million people signed petitions at the outset saying the government shouldn't be fighting in America. The largest movement at, until that time of sort of, you know, of sympathy of people trying to express a political opinion. The next really large-scale one is anti-slavery in the 1800s. But until American, you know, sort of, not so much, they're not writing in and saying we should, be, we should support American independence. What they're saying is we shouldn't fight the Americans, which, of course, was the view of William Pitt the Elder. You know, we shouldn't fight them. This is a terrible thing. It's all the government's fault for being incompetent. Um, we need to think of our way out of this without war. The basic strategy should be a political strategy, not a military strategy. That's the strategic point. The opposition is saying we need a non-military strategy. Now, that's how you start off. And as you will understand, what that then means is news comes in from America and interacts with these various attitudes that you get of the king and his, some of his ministers who are hardcore, others ministers who are much more willing to be accommodating to American views, and the opposition. Okay? And the news as it comes through is filtered through and, as it were, affects the planning process in a sticky fashion. It affects it in a sticky fashion because George III is very unwilling to allow bad news to alter his opinions. Now, initially, the British thought they could win. The British government thought they could win. Initially of all, they go for essentially a major military demonstration. The initial thing, if you think about it, is the army is concentrated in Boston. The idea is there's only a small number of troublemakers. Essentially, a show of force in Massachusetts would overawe these troublemakers, and all good men and true will then come forward and applaud the king. It's essentially the basis of it. And really, if you think about it at that stage, I mean, in, in rational military terms, it's a total mistake. Everywhere else on the 13 colonies is denuded of troops. You know, governors elsewhere in places like Annapolis or Williamsburg are, are denuded of troops. And as a result, the loyalist establishments there fall very rapidly and the governors have to, free, have to flee. But that is because the central government in London has convinced itself that what it has is actually only a relatively small opposition group that can be overawed. Okay? Well, that's point one. That goes wrong. And by the spring of 1776, by the end of March 1776, there isn't a single British soldier left in the 13 colonies. George Washington gets his cannon onto the Dorchester Heights. That commands the anchorage of Boston. The, once the anchorage is commanded, the British admiral says, we can't keep our ships here. Once the admiral says, we can't keep our ships here, that's it. The general has to go. So there is no, the British fleet, fleet sails off to Halifax, Nova Scotia. The British have lost. That, incidentally, is the war the Americans signed up for, a quick war um, in which, you know, <laughs> uh, um, you know, which you didn't, crucially, you do not need to, to conceive of or even determine key uh, key political structures to win the war effort. And by the way, think about it, by that stage, by that stage of the war, there isn't a single British soldier in the 13 colonies, and as yet America hasn't declared independence. 
That's very important to bear that in mind, because strategy is interacting, the political strategy is interacting. It is by no means clear, by no means clear, even as late as the spring of 1776, that the Americans are going to declare independence. They clearly don't want the existing relationship with Britain, but it's by no means clear to people, and you get the parliamentary opposition in Britain saying, look, look, if only we change policy, if only we'll change the government, if only the king will be accommodating, then we can reach a deal with these people. Yes, they've won. What they've staged is an enormous mass demonstration. Oh, people get killed, people get killed anyway. The fact that people get killed is less important in the 18th century than it is today. Okay? There's a different tolerance level of violence. You know, soldiers fire on crowds. Well, soldiers fire on crowds. There's no police force. That's what happens. In London in 1780, there are enormous riots, the Gordon riots. It doesn't mean the end of civilization as we know it. It just means that people riot and people getting killed. You know, it's a different tolerance level. We have to understand that. Just as there are several thousand murders a year in Brazil and South Africa, I mean, nobody says that's civil war. You know, you've got, you've got to bear in mind that levels, tolerance of levels of violence are not a constant across society. So in some respects, what you've had is enor an enormous mass demonstration, successful one against British authority, in most of America without much violence. You know, not much violence. A um, place like South Carolina or Maryland had seen very little violence in, in 1775, early 1776. The British army has been pushed out. Uh, its, its attempt to overawe the opposition has, and has failed. Essentially, in the spring of 1776, George III fluffs his chance. Why he fluffs, as he has done actually for several months going, he fluffs his chance because, you know, as you may know, there are American politicians who are still negotiating in London, are still saying there are ways to try and end this. Why does he fluff his chance? Because he, in the terms of the political strategy, is unwilling to see at that stage the compromising of royal authority that might have been necessary. Um, the, um, the, what had been on the table, what some of the radicals had put on the table in 74, which is an idea that the individual colonies should not be under the British crown, um, should certainly not be under Westminster, but they should be under their own monarch, who should just happen to be George III, you know, but have, with him having very little authority, rather like the Queen now has in Canada. You know, the Queen is in theory Queen of Canada, but you know, if, the, if she said something and the Canadian government didn't want to do it, that, you know, obviously she, she would have absolutely no effect. So in a sense, what we're talking about, which, in a, which both Adams and Jefferson had mentioned in, in that stage, is the possibility of what subsequently is to be called dominion status. Um, doesn't work. No political strategy on the part of George III. That helps to trigger... Uh, the move to independence, and on top of that, the empire under George III strikes back. Okay? The summer of 1776, the situation is completely militarized when the British send the largest army they've hitherto sent outside Britain, and it lands at first Staten Island, then Long Island, then Manhattan, and you've got large-scale war. Until then, you haven't had large-scale war. The British have essentially been fighting with the troops they already had there, which is quite a small army. Now you have a big army. They've militarized the solution. They've put the political strategy, if any, back, right, you know, they've hidden it, as it were. There isn't a political strategy, really, in late 76. The conviction is that they can win militarily. And that is tried in 76 and 77. It is an emphasis. It's true that the Howes, the Admiral who is the, and his brother, the Admiral Richard Howe, who is the chief um, British naval commander in North America, and his brother, General William Howe, who is the chief army commander, it's true that the Howes are given permission to negotiate with the Americans, um, but the emphasis is on fighting. 
Now, in 76 and 77, they are in one respect successful and in another respect very unsuccessful. They are successful in that they show, despite Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, they show that they can act, which had created an impression of maybe this is a, maybe you know, there is a completely new revolutionary form of warfare and the British can't hack it. What they actually show in 76 is that they can win. You know, they win the Battle of Long Island, they capture New York City, they capture the big garrison at Fort Washington, they capture Newport, Rhode Island. In other words, they recreate an impression of military proficiency. They show that the Continental Army can only do so well. Washington manages a brilliant riposte at Trenton, which pricks the bubble of British success. But then again, in 77, Howe gets himself organized again, decides to go by sea, and the Americans find it very difficult to match British uh, naval capability, go by sea, lands near Philadelphia, and march on the capital of the revolution, beats up the Continental Army at Brandywine, captures Philadelphia. So yet again, what they have shown is that at that level, they are militarily proficient. The trouble is, what they are lacking is any, um, any real understanding of how to move, for, and certainly on George III's part, any real understanding of how to move from battlefield victory to a political verdict, because as you will know, if you're dealing with any civil war, indeed any war as a whole, part of the skill of victory is persuading the other side that they have lost, and that then, having lost, that they have to accept your verdict of events. I mean, in a sense, war is a psychological process. Um, you have to persuade others to accept your verdict, both your verdict on the actual conflict... You know, in the sense, a battle is, you think it's a victory. Yes, it is a victory. The other side accept that they've actually lost that battle. And also, then, your verdict on what these battles mean. So it's a double psychological whammy, if you like. Okay? Um, you, need to, you, you need to do that. And they really had not worked out psychologically how they were going to meal, move from battlefield victory to actually a political verdict. That is much more important than the fact they were also lost some battles, you know, Saratoga, for example. The most important thing is not whether the, how many battles they won or lost. It's not, you know, what would have happened if Howard got his, uh, Admiral Howard got his fleet in the East River and Washington hadn't been able to get away from Long Island in 76, that kind of counterfactualism. Because what you actually need to do is to really say, however many battles they won, the 13 colonies is a very large space of territory. The British are relatively short of troops. How are you actually going to translate battlefield victory, which you can win against an, another side, which essentially is fighting in a way you're familiar with, if you haven't got a political strategy to underline it? And this, of course, opens up the contrast with classic Ancien Regime uh, warfare, because classic Ancien Regime warfare could be just as bitter, even more bitter, in fact, but on the whole, wars are going to be ended by some form of territorial exchange. And territorial exchange provides the way to register success or failure. You know, Well, you can't do that in the case of America. So you have this problem. How are you going to do it if you can't register success or failure that way or if this doesn't work as a goal? It is true, I mean, you know, one should always criticise one's own argument, it is true that the British, of course, had had counterinsurgency experience in Scotland in 1745-6 and were to do so again in Ireland in 1798. But neither of those were on the scale uh, of the problem that they're facing them in the North America. And also, in the case of both of those wars, particularly in Scotland, having won the battle and obviously terrorised a certain number of the people who opposed them, 
they are then able to recreate a political settlement that is going to work in a way that really wasn't on offer. I mean, dynasticism operates as a model that will work for most Scots. I mean, a lot of the Scots who'd been rebels in 1746 are only too happy to fight for George III uh, in, in, in North America in the 1750s. That kind of dynastic model isn't really going to work uh, with a lot of the Americans. So you've got that as a problem in 76-77. In 78, the situation gets even more unpredictable because France comes into the war. Now, until 78, the British have been able to pursue, whatever you want to call it, let's call it counterinsurgency for want of a better word, the British have been able to pursue their counterinsurgency struggle in North America in a vacuum. The vacuum is as follows. Yes, it is true that the American revolutionaries are receiving a certain amount of financial and military support in the shape of, shape of munitions from both the Spaniards via Havana and from the French. Very important, because the Americans are short of saltpeter, which is necessary for gunpowder. They're short of gunpowder. They're short of firearms, which is why some of the early American units were armed with pikes. And they're terribly short of bullion. Uh, North America at that stage, it's not like the Comstock load during the American Civil War. North America is an unmetallic society, desperately dependent on currency and bullion coming in from elsewhere. It's in a sense its major, its major strategic weakness, if you like, which of course means that its paper currency instruments are really, flaw really limited. They don't rest on any bullion supplies, and that makes it much harder to run a revolutionary government and purchase things. Real problem. And if you don't believe me, you can read uh, Washington's co Revolutionary War Correspondence. Frequent reference to the, these financial problems. So uh, there's heavy dependence on French and Spanish support, but it's all informal. It's not... It's not public. France and Spain hasn't recognized the revolutionary government. You know, these are, these are informal shipments, often by enthusiasts. I mean, enthusiasts who are, who are being given covert support, but nevertheless enthusiasts. And the British government can, um, you know, pretty well accept it because it's still blockading America. So much of this stuff isn't getting through. So, you know, um, and because it, under international law, these are British colonies, the British government is entirely entitled to stop French and Spanish ships sailing there if it can stop them. So in practical terms, although this assistance is important to the Americans, only a certain amount of it is getting through. Well, in 78, things change because France comes into the war. France, why France comes into the war is controversial, and if you want, I can talk about it during questions. But France coming into the war crucially interacts with the strategic debate within Britain and reminds us that military tasks are set by the wider military political strategic parameters. Essentially, this is a politicized question now. The opposition, the Rockinghamite Whigs, say, aha, here now we have the real war. We shouldn't be fighting our cousins. What we should be doing is fighting the French. These are terrible people. These are our real, our real enemy. Um, and they're a real interest we have to defend against them. So what the Rockinghamite Whigs urge is the end of offensive operations in North America, if possible, negotiations with the Americans, but if the Americans won't negotiate at this stage, at least the end of offensive operations, and focusing the war on the French. The government, of course, is in a bit of a fix, because the last thing any government wishes to do is to, follow, is to um, show that it's following the, uh, the, op the opposing point of view, you know, the oppo opponent's point of view, and also because to do so would be to undercut the entire per point of the war. What is the point, they say, of, of, of sitting there just in garrisons in North America? We will never beat the Americans that way. But the war strategy, the strategy is the political di division over the war is 
greatly exacerbated and accentuated as a result of French entry because now there is major tension. And within the ministry, there are more ministers saying the king is wrong. There are more ministers saying, look, okay, it's what the opposition is saying and okay, we don't like the opposition, but this is really key. We have to beat the French. And of course, we can beat the French. You know, what is the point of faffing around in the interior in North America, chasing around, you know, through difficult environments against people who won't stand and fight, or if they do stand and fight, choose very difficult environments for us to fight in, when we could be off taking an island in the West Indies? You know, what about taking Guadeloupe or Martinique? These are actually worthwhile to take. I mean, bear in mind, you need to think of space in value terms. Mexico is probably worth more than the, in terms of the bullion coming in and the value coming in than most of British North America. Certainly, the West Indy colonies are worth much, much more. And not only are they worth more, they're also easier to, trans, you know, to translate that worth into actually bullion, into, into things that, and as well as into taxable customs revenue. So there's a powerful argument there. And this argument is accentuated even more when Spain comes into the war in 1779. Now, when Spain comes into the war in 1779, you get some British policymakers actually taking up what had been an old British argument going back a very long time, which is that Britain ought to fight the Spaniards, take offensive war to Central and, Spanish America, Central and South America, and make colonial gains, and even, which is a sign of a mod their more modern attitude, though this attitude they'd voiced already in the 1740s, encourage the Spanish colonies to rebel. They said encouraging the Spanish colonies to rebel would be to, as it were, not just um, hit back, but also to create a world of hopefully free Spanish colonies which would now look to trade with Britain. I mean, in fact, prefiguring what was to happen um, in the 1820s. And so you get a British expedition sent to um, uh, Nicara Nicaragua. Uh, you get a certain amount of talk on that. But on the whole, the king is pretty adamant this is not what he wants. And of course, the big effort, in fact, in North America is that they switch to the southern strategy at the end of 1778. They capture Savannah. Uh, Savannah holds out against a French and American siege in 79. In 1780, they capture Charleston. They try and recreate civil government, pro-British civil government in South Carolina, then move into North Carolina. Then 1781, you've got Cornwallis ending up on the shores of the Chesapeake. You know, so in other words, far from giving up in North America, militarily, they have actually turned up the ratchet on offensive operations, despite the fact that Britain is now facing a world war. And in many respects, that represents the primacy of political considerations over military considerations at that point. Militarily, it's a very high-risk strategy. I mean, remember, in 1779, the French and Spaniards had actually tried to invade England. They'd got a fleet into the Channel. Uh, the Brit too many of the British warships were in the wrong place, particularly off North America, and it had nearly happened. You know, things had gone. George III, of course, a wrote, writing a wonderful letter, says, well, of course, you know, because he's told by his admirals in London that the British fleet is outnumbered, and he says, well, you know, it's too, you know, this wonderful critique of military history. He said, he said, well, you know, we shouldn't be spending our time counting the number of ships. You know, with God on our side, we're about the navy is bound to beat the the the, the French, which in fact is not what happened. I mean, the French, uh, the Providence took the form of diarrhoea, which uh, breaking out among the... Well, diarrhoea in the 18th century is a killer. Shortage of clean water. Diarrhoea till today is a, is a killer. Shortage of clean water. So all of these troops cooped below decks. Large numbers of them died, and that was the end of the expeditionary force, on which there's a good book by A. Temple Patterson, the, the attempt to invade. But what it shows is you've got a really serious strategic problem for the British. And, of course, crucially... 
the fact that they are up against France, Spain in 1780, the Dutch come into the war, the fact that they're up against such a large coalition, and on top of that, war has broken out with the Maharatas in West India in 1778 and with uh, um, Hyder Ali of Mysore and then his son Tipu Sultan of Mysore in, in, Mysore in southern India in 1780. So the, the fact is the British Empire is suffering enormous overstretch. You know, you sometimes, see, for those of you interested in British military history, you sometimes see references to the famous speech by Joseph Chamberlain um, about the weary titan at the beginning of the 20th century, heavily overstretched. Well, if it was ever overstretched, it was overstretched in between 1778 and 1783, really overstretched then. And, of course, at that point of overstretch, you have both military and political problems. The military problem is a simple one. Your ability to operate successfully outside your own country depends in large part upon having the balance of the initiative so you're able to have very small garrisons and to concentrate your forces for offensive field operations against opposing colonies. Okay? If your opponents... And then you win, which is what the British had done in the French and Indian War. If, on the other hand, your opponents have the initiative, they are able to pick off, you have to keep most of your troops in garrisons, holding on to colonies, and they're able to concentrate their forces on your vulnerable colonies and hopefully pick them off. So militarily, you've had a big swing. Very interesting, this only a relatively modest change in the number of people. But if it feeds through into the other side taking the initiative, then you're in trouble. So that military, that was a problem. Politically, there is also the problem, because politically, as soon as bad news starts coming through, um, as soon as bad news starts coming through, whether it's from the West Indies, whether it's from West Africa, where they lose one of the major slaving stations, whether it's from the Indian Ocean or India itself, as soon as bad news starts coming through, or the Mediterranean, where Gibraltar is besieged and Menorca is captured, whether as soon as bad news starts coming through, it increases the political pressure in Britain to actually explain how you are going to move from whatever success you might have militarily to achieving a political verdict, which is not only going to end the crisis in North America, but also end the crisis of the World War. At the latter stage of the conflict shows an enormous pressure on the government politically, not only on the government from outside, but also on the government from within. Lord North repeatedly tries to resign. He repeatedly tries to resign. North also irritates the king immeasurably by saying the only way to fight this war is with the government of national unity. He doesn't use that term, but he says taking in the leaders of the opposition, which means, of course, that they'll have to change their policy towards the North Americans. And the king, again, is opposed to that. So you're getting political stasis and crisis directly related to both the political strategy of the war and to the military strategy of the war. How, far, how much should you focus on North America? Where should you direct your attentions elsewhere? And this crisis is one which is going on and which is incredibly dependent upon good news from outside. For the king to keep going, he needs to be able to, say, to have good news. And that, in a way, is the importance of Yorktown. Yorktown, militarily, is not particularly crucial. Yes, the British lose an army, so what? They'd lost an army in Saratoga. For that matter, in India, in the winter of 78-79, they'd lost an army at Wadgoon, exactly the same way as Saratoga, marching into the interior, watching on Pune, the, uh, the Maharata capital in the western Ghats, of the hills there, they'd been surrounded and forced to surrender. You can lose armies. Um, often you'll get the troops back under some sort of agreement, or even if you don't and they didn't get the Yorktown ones back, you know, you'll be able to find more troops somewhere else. And the key British garrisons in North America are still there. Um, you know, it's not the end of the world. But the importance of Yorktown 
is not the defeat in the field. It is how it plays through into the politics in London. The news of Yorktown arrives. The government faces a crisis of confidence in the House of Commons, essentially independent MPs, backbenchers, who were fundamentally loyal, who had been willing to support the government whilst things seemed to be acceptable or going okay or reasonably okay, desert the government after that. Uh, the government goes for a vote of confidence. It loses. North then insists on resigning. George III who finds it impossible, really, to see his way. He's not a compromise. He's a man of great integrity. Uh, and, and as you will know, in politics, you're always better with people who are devious. Um, George, III, George III threatens to abdicate. He threatens to abdicate as king and to go back to Hanover, the elector of Hanover, where, of course, he doesn't have to face a parliament. Uh, but, of course, this is just sort of shouting in the wind. He knows he's not going to do that because he distrusts intensely his oldest son, who is pro-Whig. So George III is forced to turn to the Whigs and ask, you know, North, North resigns, he's forced to turn to the Whigs um, and bring them into office under first the Marquis of Rockingham and then after he dies, um, his successor, um, uh, the, um, the Earl of Shelburne. And the opposition figures say that they will negotiate peace and try and, peer, and try and, if you like, bring in a political strategy that is going to work that is, as it, as it were, based on some notion of national interest as opposed to divine providence. And the political strategy is rather brilliant. What they say is, and it's in a way would have been better if they'd had this as the strategy during the war, what they say is we're up against a coalition, very powerful coalition, but like all coalitions is essentially it is weak because it, different people have different interests. So let's peel off those who are most likely to rat on their allies. And then, you know, we'll do that successively and we'll therefore be in a stronger suggestion. Which was the group that was most likely to rat on their allies? Anybody? The Americans, absolutely right. The Americans are quite willing to rat on their allies. So basically, the British offered the Americans extremely good terms. You know, we'll get out of New York, get out of Charleston, get out of Savannah. We'll abandon the Northwest Territories. Uh, we'll leave the, um, uh, the Native Americans essentially to you. Um, and, you know, that's it. We, you know, we'll, you're supposed to give the loyalists back their property, but we won't actually enforce it. They offer them very, very good terms. And the Americans say, great, absolutely wonderful. Stuff the French, stuff the Spaniards, stuff the Dutch. So then they, <laughs> then they turn on the next power who is most likely to rat on its allies. The French, under the, second family, under, sorry, the third family compact, had promised to fight, go on fighting for the Spaniards to regain Gibraltar and Jamaica. Well, as yet, that hadn't happened, and the French ditch the Spaniards, who are determined to go on fighting. Once the Spaniards have lost the French, they have to make a deal, and once the Dutch are on their own, they have to make a deal. So, in a sense, what is rather interesting is having got, having, and then last of all, Tipu Sultan of Mysore, 1784, does a treaty with the British, Treaty of Mangalore, which restores peace in southern India. So, having got for political reasons, a change of policy in 1782. It is then very rapidly, relatively easy to put the pieces together again. It's not that there has been a dramatic military change. Yes, in 1782, Admiral Rodney beats the French Navy in the West Indies, but that's not key, and we're only talking about the French losing about five war I think six warships. The key thing is really a degree of political strategy which enables a rethinking of the relationship between different war goals and how best to ensure them, an emphasis on practicality and pragmatism. Now, what can I bring out in terms of, I'm going to finish at one o'clock, which leaves plenty of time for questions. What can I bring out in terms of, of general implications about this and general points about this? 
Well, first, um, I think when one is evaluating military plans, one always needs to think very carefully about the um, political and strategic purposes these are designed to serve. And essentially, strategy doesn't exist in some free-floating uh, uh, obvious sphere. National interest, which is the term one often uses for it, national interest is something that has to be defined and redefined by each generation. It is controverted politically. There are different people within every political grouping. I'm not talking about mavericks, but within the political system who have different views on national interest. And because this is not a fixed system, I mean, national interest is rhetorically a fixed device, but the practicality is it isn't a fixed, uh, a fixed uh, system. Therefore, strategy itself, as the uh, fulfillment of national interest, essentially is always going to rest on a degree of porosity, a, a degree of uh, plasticity, if you like, to, to use ver a variety of images there, um, which makes it much, much more flexible, much, much more dependent upon military and political decision-making and p contingencies than we often like to think. Secondly, of course, there is the issue of interaction. It was easier to reach a settlement in the case of the War of American Independence because of a just, I mean, you know, I've, you might think I've been making fun of, um, of George III. I've not. I mean, George III is an interesting man. He's just a man whose values are different to ours. Uh, but let me also say, if one wants to be critical, one can also make fun of that great masterpiece, the Declaration of Independence, because the Declaration of Independence is not just a declaration about the people of the 13 colonies. It's an assertion of universal values. Okay? But, of course, um, the American Revolution proves to be a revolution that is singularly not for export. That's the most important geopolitical fact about the American Revolution. They try to export it to Canada, it goes wrong. Thereafter, it is not for export. One, one asserts, as it were, the rights of man, you know, happiness, the pursuit of happiness, which is a really bizarre idea in some respects for the 18th century, but one asserts the rights of man, but one then is not going to enforce it. Now, think of the contrast with the French Revolution. And in a way, this is the maturity of the Americans, if you like. But think of the contrast with the French Revolution. The French Revolution is very similar. They have the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And there is a debate in the National Convention in the spring of 94, in which some, I think it's Danton is rabbiting on about the, the need to spread the revolution everywhere. And some, somebody who is rather rashly unconcerned about their collar line says, um, <laughs> says, do you seriously mean that we should extend the revolution to China? And Danton says, of course we must free the peasants of China. Well, of course, he wasn't going to do that. But, of course, the French revolutionaries, for both ideological and military reasons, the revolution needed to feed itself. They're, in order to defeat their opponents, they needed to destroy their opponents' staging areas in Germany. It's not just ideology that takes them forward. But for a, com for a concatenation of ideology and pragmatic functional reasons, the revolution is to be spread. The Russian revolution, as soon as... They are, have, as it were, even before they've won the civil war within the former boundaries of Russia, um, they are trying to expand the revolution uh, to the West. You know, if they'd conquered Poland, they would have moved on. I mean, obviously, they failed in Poland. That means the Russian revolution changes its geopolitics. Um, you could argue, I mean, Alan will probably tell me much more than, than, than knows much more about this, that if you want to look at, say, the Chinese providing support for the Viet Minh in, 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 against the French, you know, there's a degree of expansionism in the Chinese Revolution, but I don't know enough about that. But in the case of the American Revolution, what is striking is the degree to which it does not expand. 
Now, that, of course, makes compromise with the Brits much, uh, much easier. Functionally, of course, in many senses, it should have tried to expand. The key naval bases from which the British can harass and blockade America are not in America. They're Halifax, Nova Scotia, and they're Kingston, Jamaica, an English, English harbour uh, down in the West Indies. No attempt really can be made to capture these. Of course, America lacks, until the 1890s, a big, deep, deep draft navy. I mean, uh, they, obviously, the Union has the second biggest world, navy in the world in 1865, but it's essentially shallow draft ironclads for coastal blockading. You couldn't have used it, you know, to sail in large numbers to the Indian Ocean or something, or across the Pacific. It's not to the 1890s that you can really think of America as being in a position to challenge fundamentally the strategic interests of Britain at that distance. Um, I mean, if you think about the war, for both, both that war and the War of 1812, one of the great problems for the Americans is that, in a way, the war is only going to stop when the Brits decide to stop fighting. Because there's no way that the Americans can conquer England or, la or dictate peace with guns trained on London. You just, they just can't do it. They don't have. John Paul Jones can sail to Flamborough Head with three ships lent by the French. I mean, that's it. There is no strategic level of naval power. The Americans don't even have a squadron large enough to blockade the St. Lawrence in either the, the American Revolutionary War or the War of 1812. So militarily, in the American case, there is, as it were, a careful link. Despite the ideology of these are the universal rights to, you know, to happiness, etc., etc., the practicality is that with the exception of trying to capture Canada, and after the 1775-76 disaster, actually the Americans make very little effort to go on and recapture Canada again until the War of 1812. They, you know, the rest of the War of Independence, they don't really make much of an effort on Canada. So apart from that, it is not the Americans trying to expand it. The British lose West Florida in the most brilliant campaign of the entire war. Anybody like to tell me who's the most brilliant army in North America in the entire war? Anybody like to tell me which one that is? Who wins that war? Spain. It's the Spaniards that conquer West Florida, not the Brits. It's the Spain, most brilliant campaign of the entire war, the most successful. Uh, sorry, not the Americans, it's the Spaniards that conquer it. Um, so the Americans, and, and as a result, at the end of the war, the Spaniards get Florida, not, not, not the 13 colonies. It is not, um, the Americans' military strategy is much more closely aligned to its political strategy and looked the other way around. Its political strategy is much more closely aligned to its military practicalities than is the case of the British. And I think that's an important reason uh, not the only reason by any means, but it's an important reason why the war was more successful for the Americans than it was for the British. One o'clock. Thank you very much. <laughs>Good question, sir. Um, it's a good question. There's also been some really interesting literature, uh, almost all of it written by American scholars. And the two key works on that are Jonathan Dull's Diplomatic History of the, of the American Revolution and Orville T. Murphy's Biography of Vergen, the uh, French foreign minister. Essentially, and what was radical about both of their works was as follows. The old view was the French came into the war essentially as revenge for the French and Indian War in order to beat up the British, and that was it. That was the view. 
What Dull and Murphy argued, and that, you know, there's a, the reason, they, the reason that there was a lack of Vergen material, but they were able to unearth some quite interesting stuff. What they argued, no, we've got this completely wrong. They argued that Vergen was centrally concerned not with Britain, but with which power? Anybody know? Which power is, is expanding rapidly in the 1770s? Anybody know? Russia. Vergen had spent all his formative years as the French ambassador in Constantinople. He was concerned, centrally concerned, with what used to be called the Eastern French strategy, which was to build up these client, which goes right back to Richelieu, build up these client states, um, uh, Sweden, Poland, and the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, and to be able to use those against the Habsburgs and to provide alliance for France. Okay? That this whole diplomatic strategy, which was also therefore a military strategy in the event of war, this strategy is being undermined by Russian success. Russia has beaten up the Turks in the war of 1768 to 74. Russian forces have crossed the Danube. Uh, Russia has taken part, the key part, got the most territory in the first partition of Poland in 1772. Okay? Russia has threatened to go to war with Sweden in 1773. Now, the argument that they make is as follows, and there are documents from Vergen, which at least are position papers suggesting this, that what Vergen wanted was an alliance of the Western European powers against the Russians, that he thought that was really crucially necessary. And indeed, the French, under his predecessor, had approached Britain at the time of the first partition of Poland and said to the British government, this is a really key threat to the balance of power. Will you cooperate about with, against this? And the British had dithered, but in the end hadn't. The essential argument is that Vergen wanted to beat up the British to persuade the British that they should accept a ranking within the international system in which they saw France as the top dog and that then they should cooperate with the French against Russia, as they were to do at the period of the Crimean War, as they'd briefly nearly done in 1720. Uh, Britain and Russia, incidentally, nearly go to war in 1791, the Oshkov crisis. That's, that's what Vergen appears to have been wanting. Of the other ministers, the finance minister, the controller general, Terzio, didn't want war at all, felt it couldn't be afforded. And the navy minister, um, Castries, uh, and in fact his sidekick, sidekick Sartine, the, actually does want war with the British, but wants the war to focus not on America, but on India. And again, it's worth bearing in mind, it's very interesting this. The American, the French send two expeditions, big expeditions, to help rebellions against the British in 1780. One, the one you know all about, the Rochambeau expedition obviously arrives in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. The second one is under a man called Bussy, which goes first to Réunion and Mauritius, and then goes to help Mysore against the Brits. Unfortunately, from their point of view, a lot of people get killed from, by disease. It's a much longer area to, to project French power, though the French do send a much better admiral. Their best admiral goes to the Indian Ocean, Soufren who's really very good indeed, um, and puts a lot of pressure on the Brits. And it's rather interesting, this, to see the extent to which there are options within France. So you see, just as there are different strategies on offer within France, and in part for the French, I mean, you know, you want to play through the War of Independence. By, Vergen got it going by 78. By 81, by 81, France is running short of money. The strain is great. And the war isn't necessarily producing the verdict you wanted or looked at differently. They've already sunk some blows on the Brits. Why not settle the war and let's see if we can move forward? Because after all, what interest is it for the French of fighting on forever just to get the British out of North America? And to a certain extent in 81, everybody is in a race. That, in a way, is one of my views as to why 
Cornwallis does this high-risk strategy of marching to the, court, to the Chesapeake. Everybody is in a race because everybody knows that, the situa- that they need success. The war has been going on for a long time. And I think, um, you know, in America, you've got the Pennsylvania and New Jersey line mutiny at the beginning of 81. The army is very, very crumbly. Um, the the uh, economic strain of the war is immense. Um, so in America, there's strains, there's war weariness. In Britain, there's a sense of we're under enormous pressure from everybody. In France, there's a strength of why the sense of what the hell are we going on fighting for. And that kind of respective risk, everybody is in a risk scenario, and that pushes them, makes them, puts pressure on them all in 81. Yes, yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, the British badly missed opportunities, and the loyalists, it's not just that their numbers are difficult, but roughly a third, yes. It's not just they're roughly a third, roughly a third patriot, roughly a third don't want to get involved, which is fairly normal with civil wars. It's not just that. The loyalists are more important for two reasons, well, three reasons. One, they're geographically concentrated, so that, you know, they're not evenly spread. There are some areas, Georgia, much of North, no, not all of North Carolina, eastern shore of the Chesapeake, large chunks of New Jersey, Long Island, and New York, where there's heavy loyalist concentrations, whereas um, much of Virginia and much of New England, very few uh, loyalists. So, so the c- geographical concentration makes them important. Second, many of them have military experience. They've served in militia. They've served in, the, in, in war. Thirdly, they're willing to die. I mean, you know, I mean, you think about battles like King's Mountain. We talk about the British being defeated. The, you know, the British people, people, troops killed there are overwhelmingly loyalists. You know, they're willing to die. Loyalist units take very high casualty rates, a lot of them, not all of them. Um, so, yes, they are important. I mean, the usual way you would argue it is that the British failed to put enough weight on the loyalists until they developed the southern strategy. You know, until, in other words, late 78. That they rely overwhelmingly on regulars at the early stages. Um, and in particular... Um, you could say that in 75, by focusing their forces in Massachusetts and not providing support to the Loyalists in both Virginia and even more North Carolina, where, as you know, there were uh, uh, battles, uh, that that was a major missed opportunity. So I think that is without a doubt the case. Um, I also think politically, um, I mean, by 78, they know what to do. And, you know, when they capture Charleston in 80, they recreate civil authority. Uh, And that's a sensible policy to do. Um, And at the end of the war... They actually, I mean, often in wars, people badly let down those who have fought for them. We know that. That's uh, an embarrassing side of all sorts of wars. We've all been involved in like that. Um, Actually, the government, the British government, makes quite major efforts. Not, I mean, they can't do very much to get the loyalist property back, but they make quite major efforts. For example, George is very keen that the loyalists get land for virtually free in Canada and to back them in Canada. They're very keen to, um, a lot of, there's a lot of government support, private money from government ministers behind the colony for free blacks, the, you know, the escaped slaves which they established in Sierra Leone, you know, at, at uh, Freetown. Um, but it's particularly, it's particularly Canada. I mean, the government makes a big effort. And of course, in the end of the day, that's, you could say, is why they do so well in the War of 1812, because it's Americans killing Americans. It's the second American Civil War, is the War of 1812. The first American Civil War, I'm not talking about things like Bacon's Rebellion, which is small scale, but the first American Civil War is the American War of Independence. The second American Civil War is the War of 1812, because fundamentally Canada is defended 
uh, by militia units because the British regulars are mostly in Spain under the Duke of Wellington. And these militia units are essentially, I mean, there are some French Canadians, but they're essentially Americans, you know, um, people that are often the children of people that had left or been kicked out and felt angry and bitter and humiliated. And they're quite keen to fight uh, in, 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 you know, 1812, 1813 and 1814. So it's, it's, and then obviously you get the Third Civil War in the 1860s. Sorry, yes, sir. You and your reasons for France entering the war, you just mentioned Saratoga was lost. How much impact did Saratoga have? That's a very good question again. Um, the, obviously, the French were only keen to formally go into the war if the Americans looked as though you know, it was going to succeed. Essentially, the traditional argument is, is Saratoga, that the ability to defeat Burgoyne tips the balance. Um, Murphy argues in his biography of Vergennes that actually the key battle is Germantown. And what he says is this, that Germantown, as it were, uh, Germantown is not an American victory. It's, you know, it's a, you know, it's a draw, if you like, whatever you want to call it. I mean, the, I, I take, take it you know, the Washington tries to recapture uh, Philadelphia. They advance in the sort of fog of the urban early morning. Uh, they, they bash the British, but the British then hold them off and bash them. I mean, you know, it's essentially a draw. It's a bit like Monmouth Courthouse. Um, sorry? Sorry, sorry. That, you know, I mean, Monmouth Courthouse is fascinating because both sides claim it as a victory, which is another way of saying it was a draw. But, um, but, um, but um, what was crucial for the French about Germantown is it shows that the main American field force, after losing Philadelphia, is still in the war. They can mount a rep I think it's December the 4th, something like that. In, uh, uh, you know, my memory isn't good, but I think it's something like December the 4th. So it's quite soon after the loss of Philadelphia, and then they come back and hit back. And that apparently impressed the French. I think it's a mixture of both. I should imagine it's a mixture of both. But the argument is either, is either Saratoga or Georgetown, or, uh, or Germantown, sorry, or both, convinces the French the Americans are still in the war. And by convincing them that they're still in the war, it's therefore worth sending support. Um... And, you know, that links up to a wider stri military strategic question, which I take it you know. Again, very crude, very quick, but uh, we've only got so much time. There's this question of the debate about how best to organize the American forces. Do you organize them as sort of low-level militia forces operating guerrilla tactics, you know, which to a certain extent is what Charles Lee advocated. Don't, don't engage in position warfare. Don't fight the main British field force. Or do you go for a formalized army, as Washington urges, and engage in position warfare? And one of Washington's central points, and he was undoubtedly correct in this, is the new American state, if it is to get international recognition, has to behave like a state. And a key way of behaving like a state is to have an army. Um, and, to th and to that extent, I think he was absolutely correct. I mean, you know, it's a classic example of the fact that you might be taking military risks, but you might be having a political benefit. Um, and I think, that was, that, I think that was absolutely correct on Washington's part. Washington is, is a poor uh, battlefield commander in 76, 77, but he's a very acute thinker about the wider political uh, nature, resonances of the conflict. Uh, the British, I think, the opposite way around. Their commanders are often quite good. I mean, not all of them, but, I mean, Burgoyne was obviously a disaster, but they're quite good as battlefield commanders. I mean, but they're not always good at thinking of the wider resonances of what's going on. Sorry, hey, madam, and then, sir, yeah. Hmm. 
Yes. Well, yeah, can, we, can I take the latter one first and then the former one? The latter one I think I, I'd answer more easily. Even if the British had won at Yorktown, by which, let's say, the, the, there'd been a series of assaults and they'd been beaten off, or more probably the, uh, the French hadn't been able to block the, the Virginia Capes and they'd just been able to sail away, as Clinton did after Monmouth Courthouse, I don't think they could have beaten the Americans in a conventional sense at that time. There was too much of America that was now used to being in an organized, independent fashion. That was, there was war weariness, yes, but that isn't the same as defeat. I think that's a crucial difference. So, but let me take the first point, which I think is a very, very, very interesting point. One has to think back to a situation where you don't have general staffs and you don't have formalized methods of, deci of decision making. And in fact, government is actually proceeding with a tiny number of men. I mean, to give you an idea, this is a slightly different example, but I think it drives the point home very clear, clearly to how we think about strategy. In the mid-1780s, the British ambassador in Vienna, Sir Robert Murray Keith, had a row with the Foreign Secretary. Essentially, the Foreign Secretary, the Marquis of Carmarthen, had sent him, it's either 43, 44, 45 letters. Uh, no, he'd sent to the Carmarthen 43, 44, 45 dispatches, and he hadn't had a single instruction in reply. So he writes a really rude you know, sort of dispatch. Basically, is there anybody out there? And, and, uh, and <laughs> Carmarthen write, then writes to him to say he has to withdraw that dispatch from the record. He refuses. He's recalled to London. Okay? He, comes, he goes to London, and he goes to the Foreign Office, and he turns up. I think it's a Wednesday afternoon. It's a weekday afternoon. I think it was a Wednesday afternoon. And there literally is nobody in the building. And in a way, that's not that surprising because the entire staff of the Foreign Office at that point was 12, including the lady that cleaned the, the steps, 12. And, and, you know, in a way, what one thinks about strategy, it's often the case in 18th century, I mean, my joke and earlier in the strategy is it's five men and the Duke of Newcastle. The Duke of Newcastle is always there from the 1720s to the 1760s, and it's five other men. In many senses, what you've got is the, what was called in the time the effective cabinet. So it's the king and the key ministers, okay? And they don't have a formalized body of documentation, which we would call military strategy, and a formalized body of documentation, which we would call political strategy. Military strategy are the instructions sent to the generals. The navy is handled completely separately, okay? There's no, there's no combined uh, either strategic or operational command system. Both the head of the Navy, the First Lord of the Admiralty, the John Fourth Earl of Sandwich, the man after whom the Sandwich is named, uh, sits, on the, uh, sits in the effective cabinet. Okay? The commander-in-chief, I mean, the, the, in theory, the commander-in-chief is the king, but the practical commander-in-chief, which is Lord Amherst, is there as well. So, so that gives you a degree of coordination. But the practicality is what we would call military strategy is the letters that go out to either the generals in the field or the admirals on station. And you've not got large numbers of position papers. You know, and there's a marvellous book on British, as it were, British policy, Piers Mackesy. If you read the Mackesy book, you will see there's not lots and lots of what we would imagine by the 19th century, even more the 20th century in kinds of documentation. Political strategy is, as it were, what one can term everything that isn't explicitly military. 
and in a sense, it's the key thing that the effective cabinet do. You know, there is very little discussion in the effective cabinet on, by the effective cabinet, what I mean is there's also a larger cabinet which includes all sorts of people like the Lord Privy Seal and, you know, just, that's just honorary. But in the effective cabinet, there's very little discussion of military matters. Understandably so. Most of them haven't got the faintest idea. They don't know anything about it. Um, so that, in a sense, what they can discuss is the politics of the situation. I mean, the king has never served in battle. Okay, he'd wanted to. As a young man, he got furious that his grandfather, George II, wouldn't let him serve in the, in the um, French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. But he has no personal military experience. Lord North has no personal military experience. Um, these are people who are very short of military experience. I mean, um, the first Lord of the Admiralty has not served as a, as a, as a, as a sea commander, you know. So, that, you know, so he's been on a boat as a tourist, but he hasn't served as a sea commander. So you're talking about um, people who are capable and competent to discuss the politics, almost would rather discuss the politics. Um, and in a way, it's up to the generals to try and sort out the, the military side. Now, the problem with that, as Mackesy brilliantly brings out, is you have a command structure which unfortunately focuses on the king, um, and I suppose either Amherst or the Secretary of State for the colonies, Lord George Germain, who are, in theory, the only people who are able to knock heads together because the army doesn't have what we have now, which is, you know, a chief general in the sense certain. Um, I mean, I don't know if you know this, when Sir Henry Clinton, who is in theory in command in, in, command in North America in 1781, he finds it very difficult to get Cornwallis to do what he wants, which is not surprising. They hate each other. And there's no real, there isn't really a command culture of hierarchy and planning um, in the British military in some respects until the general staff gets going just before the First World War. And until then, you have military factionalism, you have backbiting, you have often governments finding their generals don't do what they want. I mean, liberal governments of the late 19th century, let's say Gladstonian governments, frequently found problems with proconsular generals doing what they felt like but they're not, go not agreeing with each other. Napier and Wolsey hate each other. You know, you know people have different, different policies. This is a real problem. And the difficulty is we then sit there. I mean, you know, we could be talking about the strategy of Victorian Britain. And for the Admiralty, yes, I think you probably could. But for the Army, I mean, a lot of it is the matter of individual generals who have become powerful then essentially doing what they think appropriate and okay with the telegraph, you can send them instructions rapidly, but they, they feel quite capable of rowing with the government, not least because there is a man called the Commander-in-Chief, the Duke of Cambridge, a member of the royal family, who himself rows with the government. So, you know, there, you know strategy itself, in our sense of something that is clear-cut and defined, or maybe that isn't, maybe we at least formulated and planned out through position papers, is very much in short supply on, on the British part. Um, um, there's a, a, apart from Mackesy, the other book which is very good on that is there's a book by a man called Hall on British, and also another one by a man called Muir, but Hall is more explicitly on it, on British strategy during the Napoleonic Wars. And Hall, again, makes quite a point about the difficult... I mean, there is strategy, what we would call strategy, but it is very much more complex and difficult and spread over a number of independent people, which is often very difficult to reconcile. Um, and I think br British policy in, in North America suffers from that. Sorry, yeah. Why is that? I mean, the Spaniards in the 16th and 17th centuries certainly have the apparatus which you're describing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they don't have anything like the East India Company. 
is it that the one area in which a global strategy might have emerged has been uh, siphoned off to a private body which has its own deliberative structure? Uh, the Mysore war, which you bring together, I don't think anybody else does. I mean, it's a wonderful added dimension to what's happening in the, in the, bro the British Empire. But it isn't a British Empire. It's a fragmented body. Yes. Uh, the colonial office, the plantations, all of these things have been handled separately. Is it just that no one has sat down and thought, we really need to have a central coordinating body? Yes, that's an just being stupidly British and bumbling on? Yeah, that's an e again an excellent, again, these are excellent questions and actually are of wider importance for you, whatever you work. Uh, there's a very interesting book by a man called, an um, American scholar called Planck, recently come out on the Duke of Cumberland. The Duke of Cumberland, you might remember, is the second son of George II. He becomes in his 20s uh, Captain General um, and is in effect the Commander-in-Chief of the Army um, from the um, sort of mid-1740s until he's disgraced in 1757 after he fails at Hastenbeck, is defeated by the French. And Planck argues that Cumberland was very keen to try and have predictable military structures, a more formalized military system, and in also, crucially, to appoint military men as governors of royal provinces, uh, into crucially having, having a role in North America. And, of course, Cumberland was very influenced by, very interested in uh, a chap who, of course, was a close relative of his, Frederick the Great. Um, Frederick the Great was a very close relative of the British royal family. Now... Cumberland's policies lead to an anti-authoritarian politics, an anti-Cumberland politics. He's presented as a kind of figure who is trying to push for military governments, both in America and even more in Britain. There's bitter criticism of, of Cumberland. He's seen as potentially a wicked uncle. After, after his brother, Frederick Prince of Wales, dies and the young George III, or the future George III, is going to be the king, there's lots of newspaper articles saying, well, is, William, is the Duke of Cumberland going to be a kind of Richard III figure and kill his nephew and seize the throne? I mean, real, um, uh, and, uh, which was quite over the top. Cumberland himself was a dutiful person who would never have done that for a minute. But in a way, Cumberland... Oh, yes, the nickname was the butcher. Yes, he wasn't a nice man, but he wasn't. Uh, but, yeah, yes. No, no, no. But he wouldn't have actually seized power himself. But the point about Cumberland is Cumberland offers an attempt at having a rationalized military structure in his own lines. And it is, very, it is politically unacceptable. I mean, in a way, you could think here, of, if you wanted an American parallel, think about the Jeffersonian response to the Hamiltonians, to the Federalists. In a way, the Federalists offer a rational governmental structure for an America that is competing within an international system where these wretched people out there, the British or the French or the Spaniards, might fight us. And therefore we need a national bank so that we can have a good system of public finance. We need a powerful navy. And what do Jeffersonian Democrats say? We can't have this. Why can't we have this? Because this will bring tyranny. And in a way... The Americans, it's very interesting, the Americans and the British often, despite the fact they've often had many quarrels and they had two wars in this period, in many senses are singing from exactly the same hymn sheets with crucial consequences for the organisation of strategy, for the politics of power, and the way in which military operations interact very, very carefully, uh, very closely, um, with what is possible, made politically possible. I mean, Hamiltonian... Uh, the Hamiltonians have a perfectly consistent policy, particularly for the Navy, which would have enabled the United States to follow very different policies. Um, but the practicality was it wasn't domestically acceptable. Now, in many senses, Britain 
should have had a greater military power. It should have had a more organized military power. It should have had a, uh, an army that, which was larger. The army was hopelessly small, which is why in wartime you have to rush around hiring Germans and, you know, desperately... Tr- and the, as Geoffrey says, the only where area where Britain can really operate effectively, apart from at sea, clearly, was in, uh, but effectively on land, is India, because it's in India that you can actually use the profits of local, your local um, trade and, uh, as well as your long-distance trade to recruit a vast army. The British have an army of 115,000 men um, in, in, in India in the early 1780s. The East India Company has, I should say, and 110,000 of those are Indians. Um, but it's only in India you can do that. You are not going to be allowed to have a military force like that in Britain, no more than the Americans would allow their government. And you could ask, I mean, in, a, in many senses, you would be ruling Canada, or Canada would be part, you just think you'd have a permanent democratic government. You would be, you, sorry, I, D, big D I meant. Um, you, 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 would, you would be having Canada, you would have won the War of 1812 if you'd had a larger military, if you'd had a different military structure with a large-scale professionalism uh, in both army and navy through from 1780 through to 1812. But, of course, you don't. And because you don't, you have this incredibly difficult task which repeatedly faces America and Britain, which is that when they go into big wars, you suddenly have to produce forward these mass armies when you're desperately short of the right amount of officer cadres. The officers you have are good, but you just don't have enough of them. The problem in the civil war for both sides, the problem for the British in the, war, in the First World War. Um, I mean, in some respects, that was the great achievement of the British and the Americans in World War II, that despite that problem being a serious problem for them yet again, they'd learnt enough from World War I to know better how to cope with it. But this is the real problem, and in a way it's an aspect of the public politics of these societies that they're not militarised. It's what makes them attractive societies. Um, I mean, if you think of the United States, you just think about this. If you were running a much more rational society during, um, w- during um, uh, the American Revolutionary War, you would have terrorized your population in order to bring forth the resources for that war. I mean, George Washington is desperately short of men. He has problems. The militia units are not released. He is desperately short of resources. Can he send letters saying, you produce these men, and if you don't, we're going to shoot you? You can't send that kind of... You think of the contrast with the French Revolution. The slow staccato, well it wasn't particularly slow, it was very quick actually, the staccato of the guillotine, um, shooting generals who are unsuccessful. You just think of the the effect of you'd shot Benjamin Lincoln or Horatio Gates or Schuyler. They're terrible, bad British generals, they're terrible American generals, but you can't shoot them. The French shoot large numbers of generals in 93-94. The first general is actually killed uh, by his own troops, uh, Dillon, within eight days of the outbreak of war in 92. This actually changes people's attitudes. Uh, you know, you can, you can force the, uh, mass conscription, you know, the levee en masse. You cannot do that in America. So part of the, but this, in a sense, is part of a much more benign public politics. It's part of what you're fighting for, and it also ensures you could have a quicker war, because you then don't have to go on. I mean, if you think about it, if the American Revolutionary War had been run by French revolutionaries, that war would have, you'd have had to go on fighting until you'd conquered Canada. You'd have probably have to, you know, and it would have been a difficult and bloody war with uh, all sorts of social division. You'd have been shooting loyalists. You'd have been shooting people who weren't loyalists, who you accused of being loyalists because of all they were doing is refusing to pay the taxes. It would have been a very tricky and difficult war. So in a sense, one's, at every stage, one's wider strategy, military strategy, is framed by, framed by politics. That does not mean 
that you should not study military history. It doesn't mean that military history is just a branch of political history, and I'm not saying that for a minute, but it does mean that if you want to consider strategy as a subject, which I think is fascinating, you have at least to look at the politics and at the collective psychology that underlines the political cultures, the ideologies that underlines and affects the choices that you can make and why your choices are going to be different from those of other societies. And that remains valid right the way through. Why does America fight World War II differently than the Soviet Union? In part, it's resources. In part, it's not, obviously not having one's continental landmass invaded. But in part, also, it is the fact of a different public culture. This is very, very significant. Anyway, 1.30. One last question. Sir, I cut you off. So you ask yours quickly. Now, a very good question. Again, all these questions have been fascinating. Uh, there was anxiety in Britain that if they gave in on America, that there would be rebellions elsewhere. In Ireland, there would be, in particular, there was anxiety in Britain that if the French were able to kick the British out of America, that they would then go and try and kick the British out of the West Indies, out of Canada, elsewhere. In other words, you know, almost like the modern thing, you've got to fight somewhere, let's fight in North America. Um, the, um, the practicality is that by changing government... It was made much, much easier to have an exit strategy. Much easier to have an exit strategy. And the ironic thing is, you have a dramatic change of government. I mean, very quickly, you have the Rockingham government, the Shelburne government, you have the Fox North government of 83, and then William Pitt the Younger comes into government as a 24-year-old. Think about that. In December 1783. And you've had a completely different a political sea change. It has caused a profound political crisis in Britain, the, what has happened. So pretty well the only person left in a senior position is George III. In fact, there's a hilarious letter in the correspondence between Edward Gibbon and the Earl of Sheffield. And Gibbon talks about, Gibbon, who was an MP, of course, talks about going abroad. And when he, came, and when he comes back to find a group who'd been schoolboys who he'd left, and now the ministers of the crown. I mean, you know, I mean, that was exaggerating. But the point he was making, and it's no accident that Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, which comes out in successive volumes between 1776 and 1788, the people reading that, most of them couldn't care less about the Roman Empire. What they're reading about is like reading Paul Kennedy in the late 1980s. They're not particularly, they're not, I mean, great work, great work, you know, great, great work, a great work, but what, no, 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 what I mean is, what, I, mean, I would have thought Kennedy would be fascinated to be compared to Gibbon, who's the greatest historian to ever write in English, but what I mean is that the people reading Kennedy were not so much interested in the, appalling as this may sound, the Spanish Empire of the 16th century or the British Empire of the 18th century, what they were interested in is his comments at the end about America today. That was the point. So when you were reading Gibbon um, in the 1780s, what you're really interested in is not so much Gibbon writing about, you know, assorted emperors. What you're interested in is this sense of how do empires fall? What does this tell us about Britain today? And there's no accident, Gibbon as an MP, a man who'd actually written a pamphlet in French on to defend government policy to the, audio the European audience, that was something he certainly was aware of, as there's this parallel. So there is this sense of malaise, of anxiety, of what this will lead to. But once you've got a different government, they say we've 
got to concentrate on different focuses. Now, to list very quickly, to link to the wider strategic question, the Pitt the Younger government comes in at the end of 83, wins the 84 general election. Pitt the Younger wants peace, but he wants a stronger government so that if Britain goes to war again, it is going to be better able to wage war. So how does so Pitt's domestic policy is in part, he's almost a Hamiltonian, he's, it's in part dominated by a concern to, to sort out Britain's position. So, new governmental system for the East India Company, major attempts to improve public finances, fiscal changes in taxation, ginning up the Board of Trade to, you know, to, to help there. Policy after policy that Pitt is pushing through of the, of the improvement reform type is actually determined not just through some abstract idea of how one conducts a political civil society, but what do we do when we next fight the French? 87, they nearly go to war with the French again over the Dutch crisis. 90, they nearly go to war with the Spaniards in the Nootka Sound crisis. 91, they nearly go to war with the Russians in the Achakov crisis. 93, they do go to war with the French in the Revolutionary War. And precisely because there's this domestic reform policy has come through, they're in a much stronger position to wage war. The other strong thing they decide, very strong thing they decide, is we are not going to try and revise the American war. So, in other words, we've lost, that's it. We'll fight the French again when necessary. We'll fight the Spanish again when, when necessary. But we're not going to try and recreate the empire in North America. And in fact, um, that, um, my memory for, for quotations is bad. But when John Adams comes to, uh, to England as the first American envoy, now it's 85, George III receives him. And George III says to him, um, you know, we fought a, a, a bloody war and I think we were right. But that is now behind us and we, sir, must look to the future. And that very much reflected his policy on North America. So, you know, they have rows about the frontier with Canada. They have a bit of rows about the lawyers. But fundamentally, things contain quite, relations go quite good until, the, you know, until 1806, 1807, when they, they've got a desperate war against the French and they're desperately keen to try and stop American trade with France. But, you know, that's because Britain feels it's on the way out almost and they've got to stop this. But the crucial thing is that part of the strategy, part of the, if you like, to think of it as the military strategy of a future war with France is we're not going to fight the Americans again. Um, and that's very important to the why, whether you want to call it, I think the latest point was absolutely excellent. You know, there are the problems here of how we think in terms of what's military strategy and what's political strategy. But that is absolutely key to both the military and political strategy. You don't fight the Americans again. Not that you can't beat the Americans, they're not worried about that. You know, obviously at sea the Americans are weak. But why should we go in for this enormous other commitment of trying to stage troops onto the continental landmass in order... Um, to regain control over people who don't want to be ruled by us. And in the War of 1812, even when they're doing well, the maximum war goals that they have territorially is a rejigging re of the uh, Canadian frontier near Plattsburgh. No, the last thing they intend, you know, they burn Washington not because they want to create a new British colony there, but because it's revenge for the, and you just basically say to the Americans, don't burn Canadian cities. Incidentally, incidentally it works. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, you know, but, uh, but not, to, not to try and rejig. And you get some wild British thinkers, and there are some wild letters in which people say, I mean, I came across a fascinating letter uh, from, a, from a chap saying, it's about 1812, 1813, saying what we ought to do is to try and cause a large-scale slave rising in Virginia and Maryland, arm it, and then create a state there that's going to be pro-British. That's wacky thinking. You know, that's just, that's what I mean by mavericks. Nobody who is at all senior is thinking in those kind of terms. 
So in other words, they put aside the idea of, uh, of and that's quite important to post-war strategic thinking. Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm five minutes over time. I apologize. <laughs> and I haven't had my fantastic smoked salmon and Chablis and champagne, which I understand awaits me in my bare rock box. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, well, I'm just, well. Well. And, and jokes, and keeping time, and making sense. I mean, it's all a bit much. I have not seen a performance like that for a very long time. Thank you so no, much well. for coming. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, you have indeed reduced your off time, your downtime, your bed rest time, because you're on again at two o'clock. Yeah, absolutely fine. Defending the opinions in your books. Those of you who are not military well historians, good afternoon, thank you very much. <laughs> Those of you who are, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you uh, Thank you so much for coming. Military historians, regroup yourself.